Welcome to the Servants of Grace podcast hosted by Dave Jenkins. Our podcast exists to provide trustworthy expository messages through the Bible and faithful answers to your theology questions. Now for today's episode, let's join our host, Dave Jenkins. All right, everybody, welcome back to the Servants of Grace podcast. My name is Dave, and I'm the host for this show. And on today's episode, we're going to continue our series through the book of Psalms, looking today at Psalm 77 and up from the depths. Would you please join me now in prayer? Father, as we look today at Psalm 77, we are going to be reminded that life in a post-fall world is hard it is difficult. It, it, it tests us in innumerable ways. It challenges us to deal rightly with our emotions, to grow in your grace, uh, to face uh, our depression, our despondency, our fear, and our anxiety with the help of the Lord who is near. So Lord, we, we thank you for this time. We thank you that your word is truth that you are unchanging, that you have chosen in the person and work of Christ to draw near to us, that we might know you and love you and worship you as you alone deserve in spirit and truth. So Lord, we pray that you would be honored and glorified through our time of study today and that you would help us, help us to draw near to you, help us to humble ourselves, we pray, and to seek you while you may be found, as your word says. In Jesus' name. Amen. Well, if you have your Bibles, go ahead and open them to Psalm 77. Psalm 77. And hear what the word of the Lord has to say to us today. I cry aloud to God, aloud to God, and he will hear me. In the day of my trouble, I seek the Lord. In the night, my hand is stretched out with wearying. My soul refuses to be comforted. When I remember God, I moan. When I meditate, my spirit faints. You hold my eyelids open. I am so troubled that I cannot speak. I consider the length and consider the days of old, the years long ago. I said, "Let me remember my song in the day, in the night. Let me meditate in my heart." And then my spirit made a diligent search. Will the Lord spurn forever and never again be favorable? Has a steadfast love forever ceased? Are his promises at all an end for all time? Has God forgotten to be gracious? Has he in anger shut up his compassion. And then I said, I will appeal to this, to the years of the right hand of the Most High. I will remember the deeds of the Lord. Yes, I will remember your wonders of of old. I will plunder all your work and meditate on your mighty deeds. Your way, O God, is holy. What God is great like our God. You are the God who works wonders. You have made known your might among the peoples. You, with your arm, redeemed your people, the children of Jacob and Joseph. When the waters saw you, O God, when the waters saw you, they were afraid. The clouds poured out water. The skies gave forth thunder. Your arrows flashed on every side. The crash of your thunder was in the whirlwind. Your lightnings lighted up the world. The earth trembled and shook. Your way was through the sea, your path through the great waters. And yet your footprints were unseen. You led your people like a rock by the hand of Moses and Aaron. Well, this is the reading of God's holy, precious word. 
May God bless the preaching of his word and the hearing of his word for the honor and glory and for the upbuilding of his people and for the salvation of the lost. Now, there is a great debate about who this Asaph is in starting in uh, Psalm 73 and running through Psalm 83. It might be possible that the identity of this person, Asaph, is the chief singer of Israel who bore that name in the time of David as mentioned in 1 Chronicles 16, 5-7. The problem is, is that these psalms refer to events that occurred many lives later and are separated from one another by many generations. Psalm 74 refers to the destruction of God's sanctuary, which is naturally taken uh, to mean the fall of Jerusalem in 587 uh, B.C. Psalm 76 is generally believed to praise God for his intervention to destroy the Assyrian army under King Sennacherib in 701 BC. And now given this context, it seems best to take Asaph to indicate not a specific individual, (coughs) but a line of musical servants, perhaps even a title for the music director serving Israel at any one time. One argument in favor of taking Asaph to be a single individual is that these psalms display characteristics that cause us to think we are getting to know him personally. And primarily among these characteristics is spiritual candor. James Boyce says, One thing you have to say about Asaph, he tells it like it is, Boyce says. If he's unhappy or puzzled about what God is doing or not doing in the lives of his people, well, he just says so, Boyce says. And he also describes his own state of mind, his doubts, his struggles, his questions, his inability to find satisfying answers to life's greatest problems. And in this way, the Aesop Psalms relieve Christians of any obligation to pretend that we always have our thoughts and we always have our feelings together. Through the example of Psalm 77, the Holy Spirit uses the spiritual struggle of the psalmist to connect with Christians who are experiencing similar anguish while providing believers with a way up from the emotional and even the spiritual depths. Well, maybe that's you today. You're listening and you're watching this and you are there today. You, as we read this, you can connect and you can relate with Asaph because you're in the midst of a great season of doubt or struggle or anxiety or fear or depression. And my, my prayer today is that, that through the preaching and the teaching of God's word that you might be helped and you might understand how to not only to face these situations in your life, but to thrive in the midst of them. Now, as with Psalm 76, this psalm can be neatly divided according to the musical annotation Salah. Now, there's four sections to this psalm, which break down into two main headings. The first two stanzas of, the, of Psalm 77 run from verses 1 through 9. This is charting his spiritual anguish. At first, he's going to recount his misery. Then he expresses his feelings of abandonment by God. And in the second, in two stanzas, he turns from his inward feelings to his knowledge of God that comes from recording or reminding himself of the great deeds of the Lord in verses 10 through 15. And then finally, he extols the faithfulness of God that is revealed through the exodus of Israel and its miraculous passage to the Red Sea in verses 16 through 20. 
Well, let's look at the first section of our time together, and that is in the days of trouble. Now, we're not sure what caused Asaph's trouble, although the commentators are not shy in speculating. Nobody is surprised there, right? Now, given that both Psalm 74 and 77 are prayers of lament, and that Psalm 74 seems to respond to the destruction of Jerusalem after the Babylon siege of 587, many scholars assume that this uh, calamity prompted the gloom of this psalm. But Asaph's depression need not have been caused by national events. The cause might have been some personal disaster. In the way that many people today are spiritually panicked by a loss of a job, a family member, a personal betrayal, or a deadly diagnosis. And now, whatever the reason, Asaph wrote this psalm in the day of my trouble. And as a result, he languished in the night with his hands stretched out in supplication and his soul beyond the reach of consolation, as verse 2 says. Now, one way in which this psalm helps us is by showing that depression is a part of life in this fallen world from which many, even the most godly people, may suffer. It's for this reason we should not treat depression as a sin itself or as some sign of significant spiritual failure. In fact, none less than the great prince of preachers himself, Charles Spurgeon, pointed out in his remarks on Psalm 77 that he has spent many long nights in the same bed of affliction as Asaph. The great Baptist preacher was greatly affected during the latter decades of his life with painful physical ills, including gout and migraine headaches. He writes this, saying, Some of us know what it is like, both physically and spiritually, to be compelled to use these words of Asaph. No respite has been afforded us by the silence of the night. Our bed has been a rack to us. Our body has been in torment and our spirit in anguish. Deep glens and lonely caves of soul depressions. My spirit knows full well your awful glooms. Now in these struggles, Spurgeon had fellowship with Jesus, who Hebrews 5, 7 says, offered up prayers and supplications with loud cries and tears. Now, often Christians who spend their night in despair give little sign of anguish during the day. This psalm, it reminds us to care about the personal struggles of eminent servants of Christ, as Asaph undoubtedly was, to be in prayer for friends who are suffering, and even to reach out with personal expressions of love and support. Now, Asaph charts his depression in vivid language. His emotional pain assailed him as soon as he enters his bed at night. And as he rises in sadness, he reaches out his hand for help that does not come. Verse 2 says, In the night my hand is stretched out without wearying. And so the affliction that bear upon him leave him inconsolable in spirit. And when he turns his thoughts to God, he finds not comfort, but distress in verse 3, which says, When I remember God, I moan. When I meditate, my spirit faints. This sense of abandonment by God seems to be at the center of Asaph's despair, leading him to give himself over to weeping and even desolation. Now, we can observe two things about Asaph's condition here. One is which is to his credit, and the other is not. First, despite his depression and his sense of the absence of God, he nonetheless seeks the Lord in prayer. He begins saying this in verse 1, I cry aloud to God, aloud to God, and he will hear. 
And whoever distant God seem, Asaph knows that his prayers will reach the ear of God. Verse 2 says, In the day of my trouble, he states, I seek the Lord. In fact, this prayerful response, it gives us a good example. J.J. Stewart Perone says, These verses show both the reality and the earnestness of the prayer and the strong faith of the psalmist, he says. You see, trials have the effect of testing our spiritual condition, and the prayers of Asaph show that he has been born of God. Paul wrote in Romans 8.15 of the spirit of sonship that is the birthright of all believers, when he says, You have received the spirit of adoption as sons by whom we cry, Abba, Father. Paul means that true believers respond to threats and alarm by praying almost instinctively. However poor our emotional state, a true believer's heart will call out as a child seeking the Father's protective care. So let me ask you, do you pray to the Lord in times of doubt and fear? And I'm not just saying you you just talk to the Lord about your problems. Do you pour out your heart before the Lord, your hurts and your pains and your struggles? And the thing is, is Matthew Henry, that great Puritan, said this, Days of trouble must be days of prayer. The trouble with some people is their lack of a saving relation with God. It leaves them unable to pray in times of trouble. And so they might ask believing friends to pray, but they, they cannot say with Asaph and verse 2, I seek the Lord. That's because if you respond to trouble by, by praying to God almost as a reflexive action, then be encouraged that this reflex is shows that you have the marks of somebody who is in saving relationship with the Lord. If you, like Asaph, pray and seek the Lord, and yet seem not to find his consolation, continue to seek the Lord in prayer and in faith in the name of Christ as revealed in his word. Henry notes that especially when God seems to have withdrawn from us, we must seek him and seek till we find him. That is to say, Asaph's prayer was a positive sign until we realize that in these opening verses, he does not actually pray. And that might surprise us. In fact, this might be part of Asaph's problem. He speaks of praying and seeking of God, but never actually addresses the Lord. Instead, what we see is the word you is never employed in the first stanza. It's crowded out by a forest consisting of me and I. And while he's crying to God and stretching out his anguished hand for divine help, his heart is all the while caught up wholly with its own misery. And in the second stanza, Asaph does address God. But still, the, the first six verses contain 20 references to me and I, compared to only six addresses to God. This is the genuine danger that people in depression experience. Their pain and their suffering becomes the only thing that's real to them. And so that when they're trying to pray, they are wholly overcome with their emotional anguish. And now, let me clarify something. Because you might hear that last part that I just said, and you said, you know what, you're talking my language right now. But but also, you know, that's kind of harsh, right? Aren't you just assigning the blame to me and to my situation? Can, can I just tell you something? There's been many times in my life where I can look back now, many years later, and I can recognize. and I And I can recognize that During those periods of time when my parents got divorced, that's a hard thing. That hurts. 
uh, when I lost my dear mentor about two and a half years ago now. You know what? That hurt really bad. And, and my focus quickly became about me. And I, and I wallowed in sadness and despair. And that's what focusing on me and I does. Rather than taking our talking to the Lord, not even just talking to the Lord about our hurts, which we should do. What we, what we should do is we should also pour out our hurts. Tell the Lord that, Lord, this is how I really feel. For, for many people, they, they talk to the, many Christians, they talk to the Lord about their struggles. But, but how are you doing at pouring out your heart before the Lord? Not just telling him about what's happening in your life, but telling him about the pain and the struggles and the hurt and the fears. We need to remember that we have a God who has drawn near to us because of Christ. He, he paid the penalty in our place and for our sin. He was buried and he rose again. And even now, he is an ascended Lord and Master. He is our high priest. He is the mediator of the new covenants. We can trust him. He is sufficient in every way. And yet there's also a great danger in, in talking about depression because for many people, this is a very real issue. It is the issue. And I don't want you just to, to hear a bunch of platitudes and say, oh, well, you just need to fix your gaze on the Bible or fix your gaze on the cross and uh, think heavenly thoughts and think biblical thoughts because you know what? Maybe you've done that and you find that it's not working. And the problem, the oftentimes, and I, I can only speak from my experience here, the problem is, is it's like with Asaph. It's me and I. I'm at the focus. Where, where, instead of, you know, when I when I started coming out of, of the, the chronic grief with my dear mentor, what, what ended up happening is I started with just a simple prayer, Lord, I'm just so thankful for for this and that, for a house, for for food on the table, for a job, for a ministry, uh, for the life and the impact that this man has had on me, and on and on it went. And and slowly over time, what ended up happening is not that not that I it didn't hurt as much, but my perspective was shifted. One of my mentors uh, post-college, uh, post-high school said to me, the Christian life is all about perspective. And what, what we're seeing here with Asaph is a problem of perspective. The problem is, is oftentimes we have become so focused on our situations. And those are real situations. I mean, does it get any more real than putting food on the table for, for kids and for family and, for, and, and even to to help and to serve sacrificially in our local churches and perhaps even in our community, uh, to be faithful to our spouse. I mean, does it get any more real? And yet life seems to come at us. You know, it does. It seems like every time you're you're doing well, then uh, something happens. Your car breaks down, or you're 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 you lose the car, or you, in my case, even recently, I lost uh, one of our keys, and so I had to get different keys. And so you're spending money that you you don't even uh, hadn't even budgeted, and on and on it goes. Life has a way, right? It does sometimes, and life hurts. We lose friends, we lose family, we lose jobs, we sometimes lose our homes, and 
and and those things hurt and we need to acknowledge that in fact as we're talking about this this is a lament psalm and this whole category of lament what god has given to us in it is permission to pour out our hearts our pain our struggles our hurts our fears our grief and this is a good thing because it shows that god knows our hearts and never forget this the god who made you the god who sees through your heart the the one who can pierce through the fog of of your emotional state of being he, he can peer into the inner motivations of your heart he's the one who knows your thoughts he's the one who knows your future and all things are in the the capable hands of a sovereign god and this is why we must remind ourselves like we've seen it throughout the psalms we must remind ourselves that the lord is good that the lord is holy that the lord is just especially especially in times where life seems to crush us now let's move on uh the the second point in our time together is searching about god now the second stanza starts by showing that asaph is indeed in danger of falling prey to self-pity the first three verses it tells us how he's feeling about himself and now the second stanza in verses four through nine it's going to tell us how he feels about god the lord is here addressed as a problem not the solution he says uh you hold my eyelids open he complains now we know that biblically informed christians sometimes reason this way we know that god is sovereign over our things so the problem must be god's attitude that is permitting our misery and in this bitter spirit asaph can only utter an accusation to the lord when he says in verse 4 i am so troubled that i cannot speak I mentioned that whatever is afflicting Asaph is magnified by his sense of abandonment by God in his trial. And now he adds another burden, comparing his present lamentable state to previous times when his heart was happy and singing. In verses 5 through 6, he says, I consider the days of old, the years long ago, I said, let me remember my song in the night. Let me meditate in my heart grasping for some leverage on his heart he tries to connect with those more joyful emotions from previous experiences and he realized though that the opposite is the case the more he meditates on the past the more he realizes that the days are gone replaced by troubles that he could scarcely have anticipated in sunnier times jj perone comments on this perceptively when he says such recollections may hush the storm of the soul may give man courage to say to himself thou art his he cannot forsake thee but such recollections may also be made the very instruments of satan's temptations when the soul asks why is it not always thus and so falls sad and desponding thoughts can i say i i resonate with that because uh, about a about a month three weeks into my after my dear mentor died about two and a half years ago i realized i need help uh, i got all these theological categories all this theological training all this counseling experience and biblical counseling dealing with really really tough situations and there was not a situation that i had ever dealt with uh losing a mentor and uh that that was uh that was humbling and, and I, I can remember as, as, as sure it was yesterday, sitting on the couch in the front room of our house, I, I told my wife, I need to get biblical counseling. 
And I need to get it now. I, I need it now. I'm, I'm struggling. I'm hurting. I, I don't, I, I'm tired all the time. I'm, I'm, I'm upset. I'm cranky. I, I am just, I'm about at my wits and I don't know how to deal with this. And maybe that's you today. Maybe that's you. And this, what the psalm is showing us today is it's showing us that the Lord truly cares. You know, so I prayed and I said, Lord, who would I go to talk to? Now, by God's kindness and grace, I have many friends who are biblical counselors. And so I was able to have uh, the Lord guided me to, to the one specific friend that he wanted me to, you know, that he wanted me to share with. And uh, thankfully, this person and I, we have a long history together. And he was able to walk with me and he was able to help me. Thankfully, there wasn't anything disqualifying in my life or anything like that, but he still helped me, and he helped me by listening. He helped me by caring. He helped me by reminding me. He helped me by uh, getting me to rest more, encouraging me to, to exercise more, which by God's kindness, I, I have. But the thing is, is that you may be listening to this or watching this today, and you've tried everything in your own power, in your own way, and are you ready to admit that those old things that you knew, those old strategies for dealing with life, they might be the very thing hindering you from growing in Christ? And what you need to do is you need to humble yourself before the Lord and ask the Lord, Lord, would you give me wisdom about where you would have me to seek help from? About who should I go to? Who should I ask to get the help that I need? Will you do that today? Will you be humble and will you pray because the Lord is honored in our humility and the Lord, the book of James tells us that if we ask for wisdom, God will give us wisdom. So I believe those two things we can safely say are things that the Lord will honor, uh, our desire to be humble and the request for wisdom to know how to navigate these challenging situations of our life. The issue Asaph realizes is not God, but his perception of God, his experience with God is different from what it was in better times. His feelings about God are different. Now, does this mean that God is different? Has God changed so that Asaph's former trust was misplaced? Asaph's heart returns to this issue in verse 6. Then my spirit made a diligent search. Aphes is like the Persian king in the book of Esther, who, being unable to sleep, gave instructions for the royal records to be brought for him to read in Esther 6.1. Sleepless Asaph brings out his records of God in order to make search of the ultimate question. Is God who I thought he was to be? Here we may discern something of the purpose of God in Asaph's depression to lead him to a clearer knowledge of the character of God in his works. And applying this situation to Christians might be this, the Lord's purpose in your trials. What is it? What is it? What is, what is the Lord's work in you but to conform you more into the image of Christ? Ancient astronomers would sometimes dig deep, narrow pits into the ground so that looking upward, they, they might have a more brilliant sight of heavenly stars. God sometimes put us into pits with similar motives that we might see him in all the sufficiency of his divine being. And now turning back to Asaph, we find him not yet searching for God, but rather searching about God. The question is not, uh, not how to turn to the Lord, but whether to trust the Lord. 
verses 7 through 9 contains five rapid-fire questions through which the psalmist wonders whether God is still uh, what Asaph once thought he was when he says this, Will the Lord spurn forever and never again be favorable? Has his steadfast love forever ceased? Are his promises at an end for all time? Has God forgotten to be gracious? Has he in anger shut up his compassion? And the sense of these questions is to wonder whether God is the same now as he ever was before. His key concern is is repeated in the use of forever. He feels abandoned by God. Will he always be? He cannot sense the mercy of God. Has the steadfast love of the Lord ceased forever? Will God promises do not seem to be coming true for him? Will that always be the case? Asaph wonders. Now, questions like these, they may seem irreverent, they may seem unbelieving, but that is not true of Asaph. Rather, he is simply wrestling with the difference between what he has believed and what he's now feeling, which perspective is final, his sense of abandonment or God's saving grace. Well, we can understand Asaph's attitude better if we compare it to that of the prophet Habak, who famously sat up on his watchtower waiting for answers from God. In Havoc's case, God had informed him that the Babylonians were being sent to bring judgment on sinful Jerusalem. This perplexed the prophet who could not reconcile how a holy God would permit the Babylonians, who were even worse sinners, to triumph over God's people in Habakkuk 1, 1, or Habakkuk 1 12 through 13. And not finding an answer, Habakkuk resolved in Habakkuk 2.1, I will take my stand at my watch post and station myself on the tower and look out to see what he will say to me and what I will answer concerning my complaint. Now, this action is similar to Asaph's resolve to make a diligent search in Psalm 77 verse 6. Neither man has turned away from God, but has turned to God, trying to make sense of the misery that they are facing. That is exactly the right way to handle doubts and disagreements with God, to take them to the Lord and await an answer from Him. Habakkuk 2.3 says, if it, were, if it seems slow, wait for it. It will surely come. It will not delay. This is the spirit of Psalm 77. Asaph searches with the expectation of having his doubts cleared up. Now let's move on and talk about remembering the deeds of the Lord. That is, one of the lessons of this psalm is that Asaph emerges from his depression simply because he doesn't give up. He starts out by trying to pray, but he finds it very difficult. He tries to cheer himself with memories of better times, but the opposite happens. And realizing that he needs to think rightly about the Lord, he makes a search of the divine character of God. And this is where his doggedness and pressing on is rewarded. And even though he begins this exercise with a bitter spirit, the search pulls his thoughts away from himself and onto God. And after the opening sections, which were dominated by self-pitying references to his own misery, the final eight verses of this psalm contain 21 references to God and none about Asaph. Walter Bergerman has labeled this transition the turn from self to God, and it is how Asaph recovers from the deep sense of despair. The specific ways that Asaph turns from self to God is by opening the word of God. And this turning to the Bible is suggested by Psalm 76, verse 6, where he resolves to make a diligent search. Where else is he going to search about God than in the Word of God that God has revealed himself in? 
The assessment is confirmed in verses 10 through 11, which says, Then I said, I will appeal to this, to the gears of the right hand of the Most High. I will remember the deeds of the Lord. Yes, I will remember your wonders of old. There is only one place to study God's deeds from of old, and that is in the word that he has given to us, in the word of God. Indeed, this is the purpose of the Bible, not merely to give us pious religious advice, but to record the great saving acts of God in history and to explain their significance to us. Paul says this, speaking about the events of the Old Testament in 1 Corinthians 10:11, when he says, Now these things happened to them as an example, but they were written down for our instruction on whom the end of the ages has come. Asaph likely, likewise found the scriptures to speak with relevance to his own struggles, as have countless other bewildered people who sought answers in the word of God and received light for their souls therein. Verse 10 of this psalm is the key to the whole psalm and the decisive turning point for Asaph when he says, Then I said, I will appeal to this, to the years of the right hand of the Most High. And the meaning is, is that the psalmist will reconcile his troubles by referring to the long record of God's saving deeds in history as recorded in the Word of God. The expression is striking and it's beautiful. The years of the right hand of the Most High. The idea is that a long record of mighty deeds establishes God's sovereign rule as Savior of his people. Now verse 11 makes Asaph's approach crystal clear. I will remember the deeds of the Lord. Yes, I will remember your wonders of old. The point is, is that once the believer turns to the biblical record of, of God's saving deeds, the arguments of unbelief and doubt begin to fall away. William Plummer says, unbelief says, there is no hope, there is no help even in God. Faith says, when I sit in darkness, the Lord shall be a light to me. This believing attitude is fed by the years of the right hand of the Most High in verse 10, as long as the long perceptive of Bible perspective, the long perspective of Bible history shows God uh, always returning to his seemingly forsaken people. God wisely knowing when to withdraw and when to appear and God's being gracious and faithful and rescuing his people in their greatest need. William Grinnell thus compares the struggling Christian to the trafficking hound that loses the scent of its prey and therefore hunts backward and so recovers it and then pursues his game with a louder cry than ever. And in answer to Asaph's prior question, the record of the Bible shows that God does not spurn his people forever, but returns in favor to them in Zechariah 1.3. As Jeremiah wrote in Lamentations 3.22, the steadfast love of the Lord never ceases. That is, the covenant faithfulness of God never ceases. God does not forget. He always remembers his covenant and his mercy, as we see in Luke 1, 54 and 55. God never ceases to be gracious in his approach because he is slow to anger and swift to forgive, as we see in Exodus 34, verse 6. And it needs to be pointed out that Asaph recovered these truths not by a brief and a shallow reading of the word of God, but by diligent study and meditation. He says this in verse 12, I will ponder all of your work and meditate on your mighty deeds. You see, Christians who derive strong benefit from the Bible are those who labor in it. And whereas Habak set his watchtower up over Jerusalem, Asaph set his over the Bible. We do to follow uh, well the example of Asaph and his zeal. 
Some Christians make a practice of setting passages of Scripture to memory, while others follow a disciplined plan of Bible reading. Through both diligent Bible reading and the reading of wholesome Christian books, believers are given an occasion to meditate on the attributes and achievements of God, strengthening their faith through this effort by the grace of God and with the help of the indwelling Holy Spirit. And, and what exactly did Asaph uh, discover from his search of the Word of God? The answer is that he recovered a right view of God and the attributes of God. Psalm 19.10 asserts that God's word is more valuable than gold and sweeter than honey, and Asaph discovers this benefit primarily by regaining his knowledge of what God is like. Asaph needs a faith to endure his trial, and his faith found a sure foothold in a recovered knowledge of God as revealed in his word. Now, the psalmist highlights three things that he has relearned about God, beginning with his holiness. He says in verse 13, of this psalm, your way, O God, is holy. Properly speaking, God's holiness is his transcendent majesty by which he is separate from sin and infinitely high above all things. The idea is that the Bible's record of God's works and God's deeds shows that his intentions are always holy and upright. And so even when the believer faces terrible suffering, when doubts and grief assail them, he can know that God's intentions can be trusted. And we may not understand why or what God is doing, but knowing his holy nature assures us that his intentions are aligned with who he is. God emphasized this in his letter to the Jews who were suffering in exile in Babylon in Jeremiah 29, 11. For I know the plans I have for you, declares the Lord, plans for welfare and not for evil to give you a future and a hope. Now, Asaph further realizes that God is great and almighty. He says, what God is great like our God. You are the God who works wonders. You have made known your might among the peoples. See, the false gods and the idols are impotent, but the true God is omnipotent. He, he can stop the sun in the sky, part the waves of the sea, cause bread to fall from heaven, and crash down mighty towers by the sounding of trumpets. God is therefore not only upright in his ways, but wholly able to cause his decrees to come to pass for his praise. Amen. Now, Finally, Asaph relearns in the Bible that God is compassionate in his care for his people. Verse 15 says, You with your arm redeemed your people, the children of Jacob and, and Joseph. And by naming Jacob and Joseph, the psalmist highlights the exodus from Egypt in which God showed his concern in redeeming his nation. It is one thing if God is able but not willing. But the God of the Bible is both fully able and always willing to save those who call on the name of the Lord. This means that even the depression in which Asaph languished must have been permitted by God for purposes that Asaph can trust, since he is a caring God who intends for good to come even by means of the sorest trials. Boyce reflects on Asaph's tour through the biblical record of God's character and deeds. What he says, This is practical theology of the best sort. For it reasons from the immutable character of God to God's purposes for his acts in history and takes comfort from such truths. The lesson for those of us who suffer today, whether briefly or during long bitter seasons, is that God is not the problem. So that we should turn so we should turn away from him in unbelief or resentment, 
But God is always the answer to whom we should turn to, even with our doubts and with our fears and with our anxieties, because he is near. His character is unchanging. Titus 1-2 very clearly says that God will never lie to us. God will always act in accordance with his revealed word. Well, let's talk now as we wrap up our time together about God's way of salvation. Asaph's study of scripture seems to have particularly focused on the exodus of Israel from Egypt, and he confirms this focus in the final stanza, writing about God's saving intervention to enable Israel to pass into safety through the parted waters of the Red Sea. When he says in verses 16 through 18, When the waters saw you, O God, when the waters saw you, they were afraid. Indeed, the deep trembled. The clouds uh, poured out water. The sky gave forth thunder. Your arrows flashed on every side. The crash of your thunder was in the whirlwind. Your lightnings lighted up the world. The earth trembled and shook. The Exodus was the greatest redemptive event of the Old Testament and thus of Israel's experience up till the time that Asaph wrote. And not only did it prove God's mighty power to save his people, as God displayed his utter sovereignty over the creation, but it also provided critical lessons. And one lesson is given in verse 19 of our psalm. Your way was through the sea, your path through the great waters. The point is, is that Israel's salvation was achieved through the tribulation of this world, as the people's faith relied on the power of God to save them. And this is at least a partial explanation for the grief that Asaph was suffering. God has ordained that, that we would learn to trust him as he parts the waters of difficulty and distress with a supernatural salvation. Acts 14.22 teaches that through many tribulations, we must enter the kingdom of God. As God wisely teaches us lessons and grace and weans us from the world and sin. In fact, Asaph observes in verse 19 of this psalm, your footprints were unseen. God was leading Israel even though he was not visibly present. God left no footprints in the seabed floor for as the Israelites passed through the Red Sea. But the Lord was leading them all the same. We can be sure of the same as we seek his aid in trials and walk the path of, of that's often difficult in this fallen world. Christians look back to a greater salvation event, the cross of Christ, which teaches us these lessons and even bolder strokes. If Asaph, trusting God in his word, can conclude by affirming God as a faithful shepherd in whom his people can trust, we can look to Jesus and conclude the same in verse 20. You lead your people like a flock by the hand of Moses and Aaron. And since God sent his own son to redeem us by his blood, and since we know that Jesus reigns in heaven until he soon returns to deliver us from all trouble, we can trust him right now to be our good shepherd as well. Indeed, we can do more than trust him with resentful hearts. We can rejoice in the salvation of the Lord, even in the midst of distress and dismay. We can be thankful to the Lord. And this is what Habakkuk learned when he sought God's answer in his watchtower. The answer of faith changed his attitude, lifted up his heart, so that he wrote words of hope that we can embrace through faith in Christ alone. Habakkuk 3, 17-19 says this, Though the fig tree should not blossom, nor fruit be on the vines, the, the produce of the olive fail, and the fields yield no food. The flock be cut off from the fold, and there be no herds in the stalls. Yet I will rejoice in the Lord. I will take joy in the God of my salvation. God the Lord is my strength. He makes my feet like the deer's. He makes me tread on my high places. You see, maybe today, like we've talked about, 
uh, you began this time together in, in God's word and, and you were de- depressed, you were discouraged. Maybe, maybe you realize that maybe perhaps what you've been convicted today because you've been saying a lot of me and I, and it, and it seems to be you're just focused a lot on your situations. And can I say as well that it's understandable. Life is hard. Life is difficult. But, but the only way to, to make it through, the only way to press on, the only way to grow in Christ is to remember the Lord's goodness, to remember the steadfast love of the Lord, which it expresses that idea. It expresses his covenant faithfulness, that God is always the same and he will always act in accordance with his word as, as he has spoken and he has written it and has he's given it to his people. So this is good news. This, this psalm, it gives us permission to pour out our hearts, to pour out our burdens. And even today, Hebrews 4, 14 through 16, it reminds the Christian that we have a high priest who is there, who is utterly sinless in every way. He paid that penalty in our place and for our sin. And he was buried and he rose again. And yes, he is an ascended Lord and master. And yet, even now he is our high priest, Hebrews 4, 14 through 16 says, who sympathizes with us in our weakness. He knows what we're going through. He knows the deep struggles of our hearts. He knows the burdens. He knows the cares. And so as we wrap up today, I plead with you to pour out your cares before the Lord as we finish. Pour out your cares. Pour out your burdens. Pour out your anxieties. Pour out your your heart and your struggles and the pains of life to the Lord. Maybe even pour out today that, that grief that you're experiencing and you don't even know that it's still affecting you. This, this time of year is hard for many people. Pour out your heart to the Lord. Pour out your pain to the Lord. He knows. He hears. He understands. He is a sympathetic high priest. Let's, let's go to our sympathetic high priest now. Father, we are so thankful for the person and work of our Lord Jesus, who paid the penalty in our place and for our sin and was buried and rose again and even now serves as our ascended master, our king, our high priest, the mediator of the new covenant, our intercessor. So Lord, we, we are thankful for truths like the ones that we've talked about today. You are faithful and you remain. So Lord, we, we pray today. I pray today that our gaze would be turned away from me and I and instead to the Lord. The Lord is at work. The Lord is is at work in our lives. You are at work, Lord, in our lives by your grace through the indwelling work of your spirit. You are conforming us evermore into the likeness of Christ. So Lord, forgive us. Forgive us where we have made our circumstances about me and I. Forgive us, Lord, for for a lack of looking to the finished work of Christ revealed in your word. Forgive us, Lord, for our unbelief. Forgive us of the many ways in which we're apathetic. Forgive us, Lord, for the many ways in which we're ungrateful and unholy, uh, even though you have made us a, a new creation in Christ. Lord, forgive us. We confess our need of you, our ongoing need of you. And I pray, Lord, for those who might not yet know you and yet be deeply, deeply distressed and deeply discouraged that they would come to know the one, Emmanuel, God with us, the one who has drawn near to us, 
not because we deserved it, but he has come under the sentence of death as a baby born in a manger and paid the penalty for us in our place and for our sin and been buried and rise again. So, Lord, we thank you for Jesus. We thank you for the gift of Emmanuel, God, with us. We thank you that you are with us. You are with your people. You uh, you save us. You are sanctifying us. You are growing us, all of us, in your image and likeness. You are hand-tailoring the, the various situations of our life, using them in our life to continue to remind us, to teach us, to instruct us. So, Lord, may we be humble And may we pour out our hearts, pour out our pains, pour out our struggles before you. We thank you, Lord, that you are a good and faithful and true and loving and just and holy and perfect God. Oh, we love you. Help us, Lord, in the midst of our unbelief, I pray. Help us to be humble. Help us to see our great need. As Spurgeon said also, I have a great need of Christ and a great Christ for my need. We thank you, Lord. In Jesus' name, amen and amen. Thank you for listening to the Servants of Grace podcast today. If you enjoyed the show, please subscribe, leave a rating on the app, and share our episode with your friends and family. If you'd like to, you can follow us on Instagram at Servants of Grace, on Twitter at Servants of Grace, or by searching Servants of Grace on Facebook. You can also find this podcast on the front page of our website at servantsofgrace.org.